Greetings. Thanks for tuning in to the Great Lakes Horror Company, brought to you by LibraryOfTheDamned.com. Today we're discussing one of the less pleasant parts of being a writer, rejection and rejection letters. We're going to kick things off with a spirited roundtable discussion before the latter part of the episode takes us into a one-on-one interview with Jason White and author John Palisano. Right now, however, I'm going to hand things over to Sephra. Sephra, take it away. Ah, rejection. We've all had it in so many ways. In the world of publishing, it's what makes or breaks careers. Or does it? On this episode of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, presented by the Library of the Damned, we are going to take a look at rejection letters, how to handle them, and what do they really mean. I I picked this particular panel of personalities because we've all been on both sides of the editorial fence. We've all edited anthologies and may have had to turn some people away. And more, we're all writers and likely have had a few dozen or hundred rejections headed our way, depending on how far in our careers we are. To get the ball rolling, I looked up some famous rejections. And you know what? I think some of us have some of these memorized, you know, to keep our self-esteem up. Lord of the Flies had 28 rejections. An absurd and uninteresting fantasy, which was rubbish and dull, said one editor. It sold over 15 million copies. Gone with the Wind had 38 rejections and sold 30 million copies. And Frank, 15 rejections at 25 million copies. The Tales of Peter Rabbit was rejected so many times that Beatrix Potter published it herself. And she sold well over 45 million of those puppies. Carrie, as most of us horror writers know, was rejected 30 times and was even flung into the garbage can. One rejection letter read, We're not interested in science fiction which deals with negative utopias. They do not sell. Yeah, that was for Carrie. (laughs) Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert M. Persig was rejected 121 times before it was published. And a book I loved as a teenager, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Longley, I'm I'm never sure how to say her name, was rejected 26 times before it was published. Yet it went on to win the 1963 Newbery Medal and became an international bestseller. Eight million sales and counting. Animal Farm by George Orwell was rejected because there's no market for animal stories in the USA. Dune by Frank Herbert was rejected 23 times before it was published, yet yet it is considered one of the best-selling science fiction books of all time. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was rejected 12 times, and J.K. Rowling was told not to quit her day job. Twilight was rejected 14 times and sold 17 million copies and spent 91 weeks on a bestseller list. So that's some food for thought for you there. So now I'd like to go on and let's introduce ourselves. I'd like to introduce our round table and I'm gonna invite each of you to introduce yourselves. So first I'd like to start with Andrew Robertson. Please tell us a bit about yourself, Andrew. Uh, my name is Andrew Robertson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewAwesome76. I'm a writer and editor, a podcaster and bassist for Toronto punk band, The Blackouts and uh, I've got a lot to say about rejection letters, so I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> Next, I'd like to have Dana. Is it Hal? Haus? Haus? Oh my goodness! Haas. I'm butchering your name. Just introduce yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm Dana Haus. I'm a lawyer, legal publisher, been a screenwriter for many years, and a, a massive horror enthusiast. 
And I, too, have a lot to say about rejections. <laughs> Great. And uh, Julianne Snow. Hi there, I'm Julianne Snow. Um, I am a writer, and I am... One of the co-founders of Sirens Call Publications, a small press that focuses on dark and, dark and edgy fiction. And you know what? I think we've all been rejected at least once, so that's something to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Safra Jerome, and uh, I'm a horror writer. I'm the Ontario chapter head of the Horror Writers Association and a co-producer for this Great Lakes Horror Podcast uh, presented by the Library of the Damned. And I have edited two anthologies, uh, Beach Boys, uh, which was uh, a summer of uh, gay boys on the beach, and Love Astrology, which was uh, sex astrology signs. I edited both those books for Ravenous Romance. And yes, having been a published author for over 20 years, I've been rejected many times. <laughs> First, we'll start from a writerly point of view. When you get a rejection, what do you do? I mean, after you cry, of course. Do you send it right back out? Do you throw it away? Do you try to fix it in any manner according to what the rejection letter said? No. What do you do? Andrew. Well, it, it depends on what stage of my life um, I, I was at for this one. Because I had the, the unfortunate distinction of winning two writing awards before I ever submitted anything for publication. Uh, I was 18. I won the Dion Brand Award for Young Writers and the Toronto Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies Award for Young Writers. So I thought I was the shit. And I figured that whatever I was sending out there, someone should be accepting because didn't they know I won these two awards that maybe no one had ever heard of, <laughs> no one cared about. And I had no idea how many award-winning writers were out there um, that that either had the same mindset as me or would tell me, you know what, we've all got awards, so move on. Uh, so I, I used to have fussy little tantrums and I figured that the person didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, you know, they hadn't read it properly. They didn't understand uh, how brilliant I was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with, with age and experience, um, I decided that it was something that I, I needed to learn from. Uh, and, and it took a really long time for me to, to come around to that, you know, to, to realize that there was there's something to learn from every rejection. And I figure we'll probably talk about a bit more about that later, but yeah, initially, initially I figured that they were stupid and they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, now, now I have a much different uh, way of dealing with rejection letters. And, uh, and I also realized now that I'm older, uh, you've got to constantly be producing and putting things out there. Uh, so you get a rejection, but you still have five things out there. So you don't dwell on it. You just take it, you look at it, you determine what may have gone wrong with it, or maybe it was the wrong avenue, and you send it out again, and you just keep sending it back out there. Great, great. Uh, Damon, uh, do you have things to say about when you get rejected? Yeah, um, I thought Andrew's advice was, was really good. Um, for me, uh, with screenwriting, I started out... Um, you know, not having an agent. So I was sending out a lot of query letters to two agents and two producers. And I would, you know, send out the letter. This is like, you know, at the beginning it was before email, really. So I was kind of sending them out, um, you know, snail mail. And I would send a little postage paid uh, envelope I would include in it. And then they would send that back if they were interested in actually reading the script. Uh, so they were just kind of reading a teaser. So, you know, I would send out a mass of these query letters and, and then kind of sit back and hope that at least a few come in. And once in a while, a few would come in, 
but the vast majority, I just didn't ever hear anything. And to be honest, I kind of got used to that right from the beginning. And I think it's one of these things that you, um, the more rejection you have, the more, the more you can handle. (laughs) So, um, and the rejection doesn't stop. So eventually I did get an agent and I was thinking, okay, well, things are going well. And, but then you can even start uh, finding rejection, even with the, your representation. Um, you know, there were some scripts that I wrote that my agent didn't like, and my agent didn't really want to push to producers. So, you know, there's, there's kind of, uh, you've got to have a really thick skin. Um, and so when, you know, they oh, say that, uh, I was going to ask, gonna so when you when your agent rejected your script, do you just throw it away or do you keep it and think they're stupid or? Uh, I would usually try to, you know, I would, I would listen closely to the feedback because I find that if you get an out and out rejection and someone has not read your work, then it may or may not really be on the merits. But if someone really has given it a careful read and they have feedback, then I take that to heart and I don't, um, I try not to take it personally and I try to view it objectively. And so I guess that would be my advice is to be resilient and objective with any feedback you have and try not to focus on your ego, but instead focus on how do I improve my work? How do I, you know, take yourself out of it? How do I make it, you know, as, as great as it can be? Um, and then in terms of, you know, that particular agent, yeah, I would, some of my projects I had to shelve because she wasn't interested in, in, um, you know, promoting it, which is, which is tough to take, but you know, maybe, maybe she was right. Right. Like maybe that particular idea wasn't the best and it was, you know, uh, a better idea for me to move on and try something else. So. Well, one thing I, I, yeah, um, that, that brings up a point I actually hadn't thought to discuss, but when it comes to being rejected by your agent, (laughs) because I, I, you know, I have an agent too, uh, not for screenplays, but for, uh, uh, books and uh, you know sometimes I would send her things and uh, she she would never like actually reject them and I'd always just send her proposals I never sent her the full books um, but I could just tell she wasn't interested in it and I guess with an agent you want to make sure they're excited and interested about whatever they're trying to push for you because if you go oh, come on it's really good and then push them to say they're representing it. We don't know what they do when, you know, you hang up the phone if they just, you know, laugh at us or do they send it out or, you know what I mean? So I guess when an agent rejects something, uh, we can file it away, but it doesn't mean it's bad or not sellable. It's just that agent. I'm saying this more for the uh, people listening, not to you because you already know this, but it's just, (laughs) it's more like the agent doesn't want to take it on because they don't have the enthusiasm for it, but it doesn't mean the prod project itself would never sell. I don't think, I don't believe unless, you know, it's just pure crap that you wrote and no one will read it or, (laughs) but yeah. So I, and I think that's the important thing people have to remember is rejection isn't personal and it may be the best written thing on the planet, but it's just not fitting into the slot that they have to push it into. I think. Right. And uh, Julianne, what do you do when you get rejected? Do you cry? Do you send it out? <laughs> do you fix it? Um, honestly, I, I think that I have fairly thick skin because when it comes down to it, if it re- if I get a rejection, um, I've sort of learned that the work that I put out there isn't necessarily bad. It's just really not the right fit for whatever project they were. I don't take anything personally because it it's sort of one of those things where, I mean, you know, maybe the first one stung a bit. Um, but 
it's one of those things where you just can't you can't look at it and go oh you know maybe i shouldn't do this anymore or you know maybe it's time for me to hang up my my you know my writing utensils whatever you want to call them my instruments um it's just it's it's a fact of life we all get them um and we're all going to continue to get them because not everybody has had something like has had everything they've ever written picked up by somebody i mean there's there's absolutely no way there's i mean i've got things on my my computer that i know maybe not right for what it was i initially subbed them for um but something else to come around um i just had something that i wrote specifically for a market um just picked up recently for another market that you know and i when i first got it back i thought well maybe this really isn't going to be good because got a weird little like religious tinge to it because the market was a religious type horror market <laughs> and then when i you know the feedback I, I got back from um the editor of that anthology was that they loved it so it just sometimes you just have to find the right home for things and if we're not honest enough with ourselves to realize that you know even though we think something's perfect um that it's not then i think that we're doing ourselves a disservice Right. Great. Great. <clears throat> I'm just going to go into the next question because I think I sort of answered my own. You guys answered what I would have said. Um, so I'll answer this one first myself. What is your favorite rejection letter or rejection experience <laughs> of your work? I mean, I've been rejected so many times. I And, you know, like like Julianne says, you, you just realize, you know, you have to fit it somewhere else and and all that. Um, you know, of course, sometimes, you know, if you're working on a big project, you can really cry and cry and, and you know, it can be really upsetting. And then other projects like, yep, out it goes again. But uh, so back in the 90s, um, you know, there was splatterpunk and all this stuff happening. And, uh, you know, I'm a horror writer. And so I wrote a couple of stories that were rejected. Um, and nowadays, I don't, they may be rejected still. They both ended up being published and uh, both were up for awards when they were. Uh, one was called, one story was called Release. And it's about a girl who, you know, gets a drill and drills a hole in her head to let the voices out. And um, I had three different editors tell me they wouldn't publish the story because they were afraid people would do this. <laughs> yes, my story is going to entice people to pick up a drill and drill a hole in their heads. <laughs> they haven't done their history. That's trepanning. It was really big for a while. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. I know. And now now that we have internet and stuff, maybe it's different. But back back in the 90s, before internet existed and all that, you know, uh, like Danon was saying, you know, you're putting the stuff in the envelopes and mailing it out. And you wait like six months for, to get your little self-addressed envelope back or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, and it was totally about trepidation. That's what it was. It's because I'd seen a couple of documentaries on it on TV and I got all inspired. And that's how that went. I even wrote a sequel to it. <laughs> Um, called No One Listens. And then another, the other story, um, <laughs> just keep drilling those holes. Uh, the other story was called, um, I forget what the other story was called. I think it was called um, Mother's Love or something like that. But it was based on something that happened to me in real life uh, when my kids were small. And I, and, uh, um, I was 
coming home, bringing home my little four-year-old from the music conservatory in Toronto, and uh, we had to take the subway, and I had my other son was in the stroller because he was a baby, and so we're getting on the subway, and the stroller got stuck, and I'm trying to push the stroller through, and then uh, uh, my older boy, Adrian, tripped, and, and he fell, and then the subway door shut and started to go, and he was being dragged you know, almost being dragged by his foot to his death on the subway. And then people freaked out and opened the doors and pulled him in. Right. And uh, so that was terrifying and traumatic. And so I had to write a story about it. Uh, but my, in my story, the baby doesn't make it. And uh, he does get slammed against the wall, become, you know, dies. And then the mother's overcome with grief and wanders down to the subway all the time, looking for her dead ghost baby. And, you know, it, it's sad and depressing, but you know, I got my shit out with that. And, People wouldn't publish it because they said it was too depressing, but then eventually someone did, and actually it was republished a couple times. So those are kind of like my favorite rejection things in that way because they did go on to do things. And I was telling those stories to my son the other day, uh, my the, the one who was the baby in the carriage. <laughs> I said, you know, that, how that story was rejected, and uh, and um, he's like, but it's horror, like. Are, isn't why are horror writers rejecting a horror like horror editors rejecting horror stories and i'm like i don't know because these are those both those stories i were horror and i was submitting to horror places and extreme horror places sometimes and, and so that always struck me as odd but i guess maybe my very favorite rejection letters were the ones i'd get from don doria at leisure where i'd send him entire manuscripts and he'd He'd write me really nice letters back saying he loves my writing, but my books were just too uh, fantasy or science fiction-y. They weren't straight horror. So I would take his rejection letters to heart and eventually um, was able to produce for him four horror books for leisure. Um, so in that case, the rejection letters were great because they gave me advice on how to actually get in the door. So I babbled on enough for me. Now, um, let's see. Favorite rejection letters or experience of your work? Uh, Julianne, would you like to answer that? Um, my favorite rejection um, was disguised actually in a weird kind of a way um, because the editor wrote me back and said to me, it was uh, for a story that I had written called Dr. Franken Squirrel. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit of a kooky story, but sometimes I like to write kooky because that actually adds an interesting level of, um, of horror to the horror. So uh, he wrote me back and it was, I submitted it for um, a B-movie uh, anthology. And I thought it was perfect. But they were looking for giant monsters and unfortunately Dr. Franken-Squirrel was a short little diminutive kind of man um, who liked taxidermy. So, um, he rejected me, but then he wrote me back, um, literally like I got one email and then I read the email cause it happened to be in my email. And then as I was finishing that email, um, I received a second email from him telling me that he would like to contract my story immediately, um, for an anthology that my story had actually sparked an idea of. Wow. So... It was kind of like, it was like the rejection was, you know, he was very, very, he said, you know, he loved it. It was great. Um, it just didn't fit. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, you know, I understand, you know, it was a long shot kind of a thing. I happened to write the story. One of those stories that you write and it, like, for some reason, everything comes out on the page almost perfectly. There's not a lot of reworking you have to do. And it's just like the story flows from your fingertips and it's like su super quick. 
mm-hmm. and you think to yourself, how long has my subconscious been working on that? Uh, so when he wrote me the second one that said, hey, you know, um, I actually want to put it in this other anthology that, um, you know, is actually not the idea itself, but just the idea of the anthology as a total um, came together because he's like, what am I going to do with the stories that I love, but I can't place them anywhere. So he was like, I'm going to make a best of. Mm. So he was like, he was like, can I want to contract it right now? Um, and we're, we're good. And I'm like, okay. So it's interesting to me because the rejection really was sort of disguised in an acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like I've had other rejections where it's like, you get the story. It didn't fit you know, kind of, we hope to hear from you again kind of thing, which I think are standard uh, for most places, because really when it comes down to it, <laughs> it it can be hard to like, think about if, if a place gets like a hundred submissions, then you can only accept 20 to have to write 80 unique emails to mm-hmm. every single author to say, I'm sorry, your story wasn't accepted because you know, it didn't fit for this reason. I mean, that can be exhausting in and of itself because they just spent, you know, um, all that time reading 100 stories. And a lot of places get a lot more than 100 stories. So, you know, when it comes down to it, you get the form letter. But when you get one that's followed by an incredible little acceptance, you just sort of go, yeah, I can deal with rejection. <laughs> Great. Great. And uh, Andrew, what's your favorite rejection letter or rejection experience <laughs> as First, a writer. I love Julianne's story. I really enjoyed that actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Franken Squirrel and he was right to pursue that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've had a couple. Um, I, I actually stopped writing for a while because uh, because of rejections or just straight up not caring for people. <laughs> um, like quite, quite a long while. Uh, being a big baby and thinking, you know, I'm going to go do something else. Take that writing world, you know, just like an asshole. And, uh, and that was, you know, what I should have understood was, you know, read the guidelines, read what people are looking for. Uh, you know, and, and so I have been over the past several years, but I did get a rejection letter from this magazine that didn't even have, um, didn't even have an issue out yet. And the guy writes back to me, and he managed to, uh, you know, disguise the rejection letter as an insult. Uh, and he says, uh, this really isn't what I'm looking for. You really need to read the magazine. And I was like, yeah, when you actually put out an issue, I will. <laughs> oh I was like, what kind of asshole are you? Like, I read I read the guidelines, you know, just say it's not what you're looking for because there's, there's no point of reference. And, you know, since then I've seen this slim volume slithering out once a month um and what i want to do is you know just because there's that hostile part of me i want to go back and say you know you should really read the instructions on how to use photoshop but anyways that aside (laughs) i submitted a story to a queer cthulhu anthology uh that never came to pass uh it's called the erastus poultice and um i actually took uh the Lovecraft universe, and I invented an AIDS origin story uh, within that universe that you know that started with the ancient ones and uh, and crossed over into the human realm, you know, and infecting humans. Uh, and I sent this off, and the, the editor loved it, but apparently the publisher did not. <laughs> uh-huh. 
The publisher was not having it. Um, I'm not sure if it offended his sensibilities or whatever, but I mean, it was queer and it was Cthulhu. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was told it wasn't happening. Um, and, and I felt kind of bad about it, you know, because the, the editor clearly wanted it, but the publisher didn't want to touch it. Um, and when I was writing it, I thought, you know, is this too much? Should I be creating, um, you know, a, a mythology out of a, a very human disease? Uh, but I think, you know, with, within horror and speculative fiction, you do cross those lines. And if people didn't cross those lines, then we wouldn't have some of the most brilliant work that that has come out of the genre because you need to test those boundaries. And at times you need to write something that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, so I thought, you know what, fuck it. It's fine. You know, I'll, I'll just hold on to this. Um, and the entire anthology ended up getting canceled. Uh, so that didn't sting so bad. <laughs> well, maybe he just hated all the stories. <laughs> yeah, may maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe they were, they were all a little, you know, heartburn inducing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I sent it out again. I sent it out to uh, Stitch Smile Publications, and they picked it up for their premiere issue of their magazine that's going to be coming out soon. So, I mean, whereas, you know, one publisher can give you a slap in the face because they don't like what you've done with your horrid little imagination. Uh, there may be another publisher that totally gets you and, uh, and not putting the pen down, I think is really important because, you know, it, like Julianne said, sometimes a story will come flying out of you and you think, how long have I had this in me? Um, there's a publisher out there that gets it and is willing to take a chance on something, you know, relatively sort of gruesome or touchy or that, that crosses those invisible lines that upset certain people, but we wouldn't write, like we do if we didn't have a vested interest in upsetting people because those people that read it tend to enjoy those emotions. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my favorite um, rejection and double acceptance. I guess. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Like when you guys are talking about these stories that just fly out of you, that's what happened to me with the release story, the, where she drills her with a hole in her own head. I sat down the baby was asleep, both the babies were asleep, and I just started writing this thing. And yeah, it only took me a couple hours, and I, I to this day, it, it's what, 20 years old, that story, and I still look it over, and there's still nothing that really needs to be done to it. It's like, yeah, I wish I could write all my stuff like that. But <laughs> oh, no. Like the, like the one I've been owing Julianne for a little while now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, and Danan, do you have a, a favorite rejection letter or experience or story about your work? Yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite. I'll tell you. Well, some none of them are favorites. My, we know that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'll tell you about my favorite slash worst rejection, or maybe I can tell you about a few. Um, yeah. <laughs> the one was um, so the the second script I wrote, the uh, basically on which I, I was able to procure an agent. Um, that one got. Um, good coverage from a studio that I really respect. So I was really excited. It was really positive, And I got a sense that the, uh, the reader was going to be a real cheerleader and kind of push it through the ranks over there. And then the next reading came and it was good as well. And so I was like, wow, we really, you know, maybe we have something here. And then I went to the third reading at the studio. And then I remember my agent sending me the coverage and it was very terse and not complimentary. It was just, you know, um, not for us. Uh, we, uh, you know, this reminds me too much of this movie. And it was just, it was, it was written in a way that it was almost like he didn't know I would be reading it or else he might've couched it in a, in more, 
you know, pleasant terms. Um, but I read it and I just remember my heart sinking. I was just like, wow, you know, all that work and all that, all the hope I had based on the other coverage. But what you realize is that all you need is one no, and it's, it's dead. At least it's dead there. Um, so that was an important lesson for me that you need like, you know, at least for screenwriting, you need, you know, five, six, seven yeses in a row at a particular studio to have a chance at getting options. Um, so you have to have a thick skin and that there is a certain amount of subjectivity in these assessments. So you find someone who maybe is having a bad day or maybe has just read a script that bears some resemblance to yours um, or might just not like your concept. Um, you can get a no and that's it. So you have to be able to kind of tough it out and accept that there, there is a little bit of luck in the process too. So that was a tough one. And one other quick story I'll tell you is that um, this is the one doing, uh, dealing with my agent. So, after that script, and it didn't end up getting optioned, I wrote my third script, and I was really excited about that one. And speaking of flow, this one kind of just flew out of me, and I thought the writing was, was so much better than the other one. But, yeah, my agent didn't like that one and didn't feel that the concept was as strong, um, which made me realize that, um, you know, having the right concept um, is as important, if not more important sometimes, depending, especially depending on the genre, um, compared to the, you know, the, the quality of your writing or your perceived quality of your writing. So it made me realize how, while I didn't think the, the actual script, my second script was, was necessarily written that well, but the concept was so strong. And so how pivotal it is to, to, to have that hook. So that was, again, a good, um, a good lesson for me. So those are some of my, my most heartbreaking stories for you. <laughs> for your amusement. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, okay, um, I'm trying to decide whether to ask the question. Yeah, okay, I think I'll go to this one next, because then, then we'll put on our editor hats. Because uh, there's the the idea of, you know, as Andrew was saying, um, you know, getting, you know, you write a thing. Or Julianne, too, you know, you're writing specifically to a themed anthology, and you get rejected. And sometimes, um, and I've had it, too, where I wrote, I was uh, asked to write a story for an anthology about absinthe, you know, the drink, the green fairy. And uh, there, there's, there were a few of us, and it was this big thing, and it was back when the internet was first invented, and this publisher was doing this thing, and, you know, he was promoting it at World Horror, and then, so um, they, they had, like, I think it was, like, ten, you know, really famous writers, and they, then there was, like, three or four like newbies and I was one of the newbies that got accepted and you got paid a lot of money for that and we all got paid it was like I think it was like a thousand bucks like it was good money like real money like none of this 10 bucks and royalties bullshit you know and and you're also supposed to get a bottle of absinthe in the crate from Spain right but then and my big worry was oh my god when I go to horror find and we do the launch party and they give me my bottle of absinthe I'm going to get arrested at the border trying to bring it back to Canada but Anyways, then it all collapsed and died. So then I had this absence story. It's like, what the hell do I do with this? And and then, you know, there's all the absence stories from the accepted anthology floating around by some famous writers. And then there's all the hundreds of rejected ones floating around. And so this is what happens with the themed anthologies. Um, you know, editors will see a flurry of, oh, yeah, that must be from that, you know, Cthulhu anthology that got canceled. Now everyone's seen the Cthulhu, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, oh, wow, now there's a shitload of Alice in Wonderland all of a sudden. <laughs> and so on. So, um, yeah, so I guess I'm kind of asking 
two questions in a way, or you can just give your opinions on like, you write for these themed anthologies, you get accepted, you get paid, and the project is canceled, what do you do? Or even if you just get rejected, what do you do? You've Like I'm writing a story for this phobia anthology and I'm and my particular phobia is about someone who's afraid of numbers and uh, so I'm going to write this story and if they don't like it uh, who am I selling this story to <laughs> you know? there's like a math and horror anthology coming up yeah exactly <laughs> so um Andrew do you want to talk about this idea first because it's kind of your idea <laughs> oh. <laughs> so but you managed to explain you managed to place that one story that would have been weird to try and sell because it was for a theme, but I, you've had some other ones too, though, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in some cases, what I've done is I've I've tempered the subject matter. So, you know, some, some of the stories that I've had rejected that were intended for queer horror anthologies, um, I've just taken out, a, you know, a bit of the you know, the sex references or, you know, depending if it's horror erotica, you know, maybe there's a lot of queer sex and that doesn't necessarily need to be the focus and something else that I'm sending out, um, you know, or, you know, uh, if it's, if it's themed on a certain, you know, emotion or location, um, you have to do a pretty thorough overhaul to make it suitable for another anthology because a lot of them now are incredibly specific, you know, it'll be like, religion and the civil war and you know that's that's what we want the focus to be and you know you you put your time in thinking you have a great idea for this very specific theme and then when you get the rejection i think for those it's a lot worse because you think well what the hell am i going to do with this now like who's going to want this uh so you know you you keep your eyes out i look at horror tree a lot you know and and i've got some partway finished stories or some that didn't make it into something else, you know, and, and I, by no means do I look at the rejected ones and think, well, you're shit, you know, you're, you're an orphan, get out of here. Uh, <laughs> there's, you know, you, you spent the time to write it because you think that there's something worthwhile in there. Um, but I think it's important for anyone, you know, myself, anyone else, uh, when you're repurposing something from your very own slush pile, uh, you've really got to go in there and change things up. Uh, because if you just if you just send it out and you're relying on the editor of this this new you know magazine or anthology or whatever the case may be blog um, e-zine uh, if you're relying on them to reinterpret it for you you're just going to get another rejection uh, so you know the, in general I mean I enjoyed the the act of writing and with each new call for submissions I generally want to create something new. But for some of them, I've just looked at the call and I thought, you know what, I have something that's so close to this. I mean, the Erastus Pultis, I did actually pull back on the uh, graphic sexual content and shifted it more towards uh, horror than erotica. And, and that's what worked for that piece. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of way to repurpose. Um, I think you've just got to be really conscientious about it. I agree. Julianne, do you have, do you want me to ask the question again? or? You, yes, please. Okay. Um, my little sentence is, uh, of course, there's the whole experience of getting an acceptance letter, sometimes even getting paid and the project is canceled. What then? Especially if it's a themed anthology. <laughs> um, you know what? It, it's something, it's, it's something that kind of uh, Robert, for Robert Andrew, um, <laughs> touched on a little bit. It's, um, it's, you write so hard for these theme things and, you know, every once in a while, like 
you know, you were something like, I have a story. Um, it's called the Tates have eyes. Um, and it's, um, about potatoes because <laughs> I really wanted to get into this potato anthology, um, that was out there. I don't know why, um, but I really wanted to be in it. And I thought I had a great idea about some killer potatoes. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it didn't really quite, um, meet with, uh, with what I guess the editor was looking for. Um, even though in my mind, it's the best potato story out there. Um, I'm sorry. I have to stop you for a minute. What is potatoes? Like, is this like a cookbook, a cookbook theme or was it a horror? No, no, it was, it's an, it's an actual horror anthology. Um, it was... (laughs) When I first started, when I first, <laughs> hey, listen, stop, stop, stop laughing, okay? Um, <laughs> when I, I first started it. writing again, <laughs> when I first started writing again, because um, I did take a break uh, when I went to school and kind of did all these other things like worked and stuff like that. Um, yeah, no, so I started writing again and I saw this call and I was like, ooh, that's really interesting. Hmm, I wonder if I have a potato story in me. And I, I, I did some I did some thinking and realized that yes, in fact, I had a potato story in me because I I think we all do. Um, I really think we all have a potato story in us. Actually, so I, I wrote did. it. So I wrote it. Um, I I was really proud of it. Um, and she didn't like it, but you know what? Tater's gonna tate, and that's fine. <laughs> Can we call this episode Tater's Gonna Tate? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I only have eyes for you, man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh my god. Oh, I'm sorry I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> no, like in, in all honesty, I do believe that the editor was a little crazy because well, number she's one, a potato anthology number <laughs> number one <laughs> my my story my story really what ha- i had to have been the best i mean come on it was about potatoes it was about an <laughs> army of potatoes the french fry syndicate there was all kinds of really cool things in there but no she didn't like it nope nope so that's fine i will eventually find a home for it i'm sure of it i, I i'm positive <laughs> Group I think we should revive hats. this potato anthology. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe that'll be the next one. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do a potato group hex potatoes or something. <laughs> potato. Oh my god. Well, something, uh, something. Oh we can call it smashed. Smashed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh crap! Now someone's gonna steal the idea. The okay, now we can't fries. put this. We can't put this round table up. Yeah. <laughs> have fries. Oh, okay. that's 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 what I went for. I said I the, the Tates have eyes. That was my yeah, story. Yeah, it was all about. Was <laughs> oh my god! Oh, killer potatoes. So yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so uh, Dana, can you top the potato? <laughs> I, no, no, I can't. I'm distracted now. I, all I can think about are potato concepts. My mind's racing to come up well, with some potato is- stories. Isn't it great though? Because when you it think is. about it, like you read, you read. Sometimes you read a call and you go, "Oh man, no potato!" Uh, 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 and you're like, your brain goes in five different directions. And when you have like a kind of a quirky sense of humor, like I do, you think of all these really weird, like little innuendos and ways you could twist like 
pop culture references into potato things. Agreed. And you're thinking Agreed. to yourself that, that, that you are the most intelligent person out there. So well, therefore you are, it, it, you are going to get in. It forces the writer. It forces the writer yeah. to be really creative. And you know that they're going to get all bespoke stories because it's not like people are have potato stories kicking around in their slush story pile. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly it. If you if you want original stories, open up something nobody's opened up before. Exactly, exactly. So in terms of what I would say on this, I um, you know, I've I've pretty much written screenplays for most of my writing career, and recently just started writing horror short stories. The only one I've ever actually submitted was to you, Julianne, for your mm-hmm. uh, abandoned anthology project. So we'll see what happens there. But um, the way I would look at it generally is if. If something doesn't work, you know, even if, if you get rejected, I, I look at any kind of rejection as, you know, you still got the learning experience of writing that project, you know, and I feel that every time you write something, you get better as a writer and you learn something about yourself. You learn something about the genre. So it's, you know, you're constantly improving. And so I, if you kind of try to divorce yourself from the outcome and just look at the long game. How do I keep getting better? Well, it's writing. Um, so it serves a purpose, even if it doesn't get published, even if people think it stinks, you're still improving and learning. So I don't think it's ever a waste. Great. I agree with that too. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Now put on your editor hats. We have a couple more questions. If you guys are up for it. All right. As- Alrighty. Okay, so as editors, how do you handle writing those rejection letters? Um, are you personal? Do you use a form letter? Does it hurt to crush an author's dreams or do you get off on it? And I'm oh, making oh. Julianne do this first because she has the most oh. experience. <laughs> okay, so um, it does depend for me on the market um, in terms of are these people that I know um, some of them like having met them before, or is it something where, you know, it's, you really <laughs> receive three to 400 submissions and you really just don't have the time to personalize every single one. So you don't, because you will drive yourself crazy trying to pick apart stories that aren't even written in English. Anyway, um, <laughs> when it comes, when it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm being a little loose on that. Cause of course they're English. It's just. Um, sometimes you, you strive to find how the words connect. Um, but when it comes to like a smaller thing, like, you know, um, where you, you're doing something within a group of people and you really have to look at, you know, personal relationships as well as what's good for the anthology that you want to put out. Um, it makes it really difficult because you have to weigh, um, you almost, you almost have to get more specific. Um, you know, with the abandoned anthology that uh, we've been putting together with the chapter, um, you know, there are some things that I, I've had to turn down because they didn't fit the theme. And that makes it easier for me because I can be like, well, it didn't fit the theme. But if you think I missed it, tell me why I missed it and I'll reevaluate it. So it's about giving kind of sometimes, you know, sort of stepping outside of that um, that editor role even just to say, okay, you know what? I'm human too. Maybe I missed the crucial crux of your story that brings it into line with the theme. But if not, then you have to understand that if I can't see it, chances are 
at least half of the people reading it are not going to see it either. And they're going to wonder what it's doing inside that anthology. And you don't want someone, when you have a themed anthology, you don't want somebody searching for how a story fits a theme. It has to embody the theme. It has to be readily, like readily um, graspable, um, consumed by the reader. Because the other part too is when you're reading through something and it's an anthology, if they're not hooked, they're not going to get to the really great stories you may have placed further on in the book. Because we all know that there, there is a way to lay things out. So if you stop them with something that's not quite fitting the theme in their mind, and that's a third story in, by the time they get to story number 10, or they might not even get there. And that's like what one of the ones you think is like the best. So it's all about making sure that you you have to you have to be honest, um, you know, and, and you have to, if you have to say something to the effect of, you know what, I'm sorry, you, you missed the mark, then be honest with people. Um, but when it comes to, to having to write a whole lot of them, I mean, they, they're all pretty much just, I'm sorry, but, you know, you weren't selected for inclusion. Um, all the other stories, like, and two, I mean, there are times when you can't accept stories that are really freaking good. And yeah. you're like, oh, because like it tears your heart out. Yeah. So, I mean, you can say that. You can say, you know what? Your story was great. It's just in the end, it wasn't quite what we we're looking for. And if an author, if an author cannot accept that kind of uh, an understanding of, of the fact that, you know what? It was a great story. It just wasn't what we were looking for. Then, you know, that's not on you. That's on them. Yep. It's your project. Mm-hmm. great so that, that my little bit of a ramble no that's great because you do this all the time so it's good for writers to understand it from your perspective for sure mm-hmm. and uh damon you you don't work with horror fiction but you do uh you are an acquisitions editor right yeah i'm, I'm a publisher so i'm a professional publisher, publisher so, my, so you get to uh, tell people to go away <laughs> Yeah, I publish legal uh, legal monographs, um, and you know I don't get a ton of unsolicited proposals. I'm usually going after the people that that I think are the authorities in the field. But I do, you know, I would say maybe once a month I'll, I'll get a proposal, or once in a while even an unsolicited manuscript. And um, you know, I do personalize because they're kind of few and far between. I do personalize my my rejection, um, and I I try to be nice and I try to be encouraging and I try to thank them for their interest in the company because I basically don't want to burn any bridges while that, that idea or that manuscript might not be the right fit. Their next one might. And, um, I still want them to come to me. I still want to have a chance to be able to assess it. And they may become a real force in that area of law, for instance. And, um, if I have burned that bridge and, and left a bad taste in their mouth through my feedback or lack thereof, then I've lost out on a future opportunity. So I do try to provide some feedback. I will even suggest other publishers that they might want to go after if it's not quite the right fit for my portfolio. Um, so I do try to be encouraging. I do try to be helpful. And I, um, you know, I do want to see what else they have um, in case uh, you know, their next idea is a blockbuster. 
<laughs> Fantastic. And uh, so you're saying how you solicit um, work from people. And I know I, I'm at that point in my career where people ask me to do stuff for them. And usually that means they're taking it regardless of what it is I turn in. So have you had experience with you've asked for something, you think they're doing something, and they've totally gone down the garden path and you're like, oh, man, we can't use this. Uh, um, what do you do or have you had that happen to you? Yeah, it happens quite a bit where um, projects will come in and they're not they're not really as we had discussed. Um, so they're not really written for the right market or, you know, it's incredibly undersized or, or the tone of it is off. But, you know, we have some staff internally who can um, help guide the writer and kind of massage some of the content and get them back on track. Um, but, you know, again, the way you message that, it's like, positive focus on what they've done right and then help them work towards fixing some of their kind of shortcomings um but you know i always try to message it with clarity and with a certain level of encouragement because you know i having being a writer i know how much work goes into these projects and uh how important it is to the office have you ever had anyone have a big suck attack and just march off with their stuff and say, you don't know what you're talking about and they're not going to take your help? Um, no, I've been able to avoid that. Yay. And once they sign the contract, we've copyright, so they can't actually walk away with the project. <laughs> oh, great. Good stuff. You got it all. Well, you are a lawyer, so you got it all covered. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, fantastic. And Andrew, uh, how, what do you do? Have you had to reject people yet for the projects or are you, are you able to accept everyone still or what, what's happening with the second round of uh, being oh, an editor? No. <laughs> oh, the glory of being an editor you're discovering, right? <laughs> there are some things that no one can accept. Uh, and, you know, that's that's been part of the experience. Um, outside of the group hacks anthologies, I've worked on uh, on magazines, other books, uh, web content, and zines. So you know, for the past twenty five years, um, I've been dealing with writers on different topics. Uh, you know, fiction, nonfiction, essays, poetry. Uh, you know, there's art in there as well. Um, and and I think one thing that that people need to learn is there's you know if you're going for something like say a themed anthology. Read an anthology that's edited by someone who's an expert, like Ellen Datlow. I'm thinking the doll collection. You look at the way that all those different authors took the idea of dolls, and they, they didn't just pull on the most obvious interpretation of what a doll is and how a doll can be creepy and how it could be a dark story. You know, And it's, I think it's really worthwhile to read collections by master anthologists to remind yourself of how far you have to stretch your imagination to really stand out because there are hundreds of people out there for these you know, public uh, open calls for submissions that all think they have a great idea. But you've really, gotta, you've really gotta stretch that as far as you can go and take it as far as you can um, to stand out. So I, I think that's, some, that's just a piece of advice for me. Uh, but in terms of what an editor is not looking for, don't send it to me on your favorite color of paper. I don't want to read it on green or pink or blue. Or none of this shit where the page is black and the type is white. 
Um, I don't want to know what your favorite font is. I want to read it in the font that I've requested it in. So if I said something normal like times 12 point and you're sending it to me and God forbid Dakota, my least favorite font, I can't even stand <laughs> to look at because every <laughs> Cali Max restaurant uses it on their menu. I'm going to think I'm reading it at a restaurant I don't want to be in. Uh, <laughs> what else? Don't send me your story in 10 separate parts in 10 separate documents. <laughs> and tell me to stitch it together and it'll work and I shouldn't have a problem with that because I do. Uh, don't submit to me without, without doing something that's totally free for anyone with Microsoft Word, spelling and grammar. How about that? It's amazing how many submissions I get with really uh, rudimentary spelling and grammar mistakes. If you're looking at your document and there's red lines under it, that doesn't mean that you chose a really great word. It means it's wrong. <laughs> and you need to go back in and fix that shit because I don't want to look at it. And I'm just going to respond to you and say, go read the guidelines. Uh, and I think that's fair. And I'm not even kidding. I got a submission that was in 10 different parts. They weren't even numbered. I was expected just to- They're not even numbered? No. Oh, I can't even imagine. I know my mind is blowing up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and don't send me something uh, for a themed anthology that comes with an explanation for why, even though at first glance it doesn't fit the theme, this it is really does. Because if, if you need to explain to me, as the editor of the anthology, why it fits the theme, do you think the reader wants to sit there and go, huh, it's really compelling they put that in there because I can't see how it fits. There's no section at the end of the book for the freaking book club. You know, how do you think that chapter five worked in this anthology, you know, by so-and-so? Um, it's got to fit. It's got to fit. Don't send explanations with it. Send a cover letter, how long it is. Uh, you know, what, what the story's called, maybe a synopsis of the plot, but, but don't say, you know, I, I find couples arguing to be horrific and therefore this, this is a horror story. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I find horrific is that you sent it to me. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, when I, when I go back to these people and I say, you know, I haven't read your story. I opened it and it's in different pieces. It's covered in red marks because the computer apparently knows better than you. There's spelling mistakes throughout the entire thing. You provided me with an explanation that I shouldn't need if this actually works in this book. Um, you know, you're, I don't know why the fonts are all different. I don't know why some of the text is in different colors. It just goes back like that. And I say, go read the guidelines and you can resubmit if you want, but I'm not looking at it like this. Um, so it's, I so, think it's so true. It's so true. And that's, it's, it's really like, mm -hmm. table stakes, right? Having like, you know, it being a professional layout, you know, having, having the right font, not having spelling mistakes. You can be, it can be a Stephen King, um, you know, quality story, but if it has some unprofessional aspects to it, then you instantly lose credibility. And so like that stuff just has to be, it, it's table stakes. It has to be, it, it has to be there. there there's no, um, you know, you, you've got no choice about it. You have to make sure that you, you cover all your bases when it comes to the basic look of it and how professional it is. Oh, it, it could be an amazing story, but you sent it to me on construction paper in Crayola. And, <laughs> you know, that's the only horrifying part to me. I'm like, what is this shit? Um, so what everyone should do is look up something like the Shun manuscript format. If 
only to remind yourself that when you send an editor a submission, your name should probably be in the document. There should probably some contact, some contact information should probably be in the document, maybe the name of the story, because I have two submissions for a current anthology that I put everything in a folder and I went to look through it and I had to go back through the emails because the person had no contact information, page number, title, anything in the actual story. And this was a published writer and I thought, how did you do it this time? <laughs> yeah, that, that does happen a lot. I, I, you know, especially now that we have the wonderful world of Facebook. Um, I see, I did, just the other day, one of my friends was saying, you know, I just, I, I read this story for an anthology I'm editing. It's an amazing story. I want to accept it, but I don't know who the hell sent it. And she's like, uh, if you send me this story, and she said a tiny bit of what it was about, like, let me know, because you didn't put your name on it. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, give yourself a checklist and just go through that checklist before you send it out. And and no colored paper, no no colored fonts, none, you know, like, unless you're doing a children's book. <laughs> just oh, don't. children's it, books, they don't want colored fonts. They want the artist to put in the colors. That's true. It's just, you know, just <laughs> send, it, send it all plain and normal and easy to look at. Because uh, I, I don't want to think that I'm looking at a MySpace page. There's a reason that that, that went down. The <laughs> Agreed. Like a friggin' bejeweled envelope full of glitter. It's like, no, you just irritated me, actually. <laughs> I'm, done. I'm, I'm done complaining. Someone's going to listen to this and know who they are. And you know what? Hey, your story might have been good. Send it back. Just, <laughs> just glue it together <laughs> and put your name on it. <laughs> Stitch the damn thing together in one document. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and yeah, we I guess we're uh, winding down now. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I have so many questions, but uh, we should probably wrap this up for this time, maybe talk about it again another time. Um, I'll, I'll give you each a chance to give one last thought, anything you want to say as a writer or editor about the rejection letter subject, and then just give a little bit on where people can find you online. Um, so I'll go back to Andrew for a minute. Uh, so Andrew, any last thoughts, and where can people find you? Uh, the, the advice I would give other people is the advice I give myself. Look at the feedback that you get and, and don't get your nose out of joint because you'll get rejection letters that say, uh, and, and I got one recently, this isn't right for the anthology, but there was a lot that I liked and I got about, uh, 10 notes. And then this editor said, you know, I'm willing to see a rewrite and I'd be stupid not to, uh, you know, you're, you're that close, do the yeah. rewrite, take the advice. Don't think that it's perfect and it's going to find another home. Do the rewrite, keep both versions and, you know, see what happens with that because the feedback that you get is gold. And, you know, as much fun as I make of, of all the, you know, ways that people try and stand out, etc. follow the guidelines that are given for each, uh, each call or whatever you're going into. Uh, there's a reason. Is somebody eating chips? <laughs> I know. I keep hearing all this rustling. Um, <laughs> It was like a rain stick, like soothing uh, noises to end the show. It might be a cat in the background. <laughs> oh, the cat with a rain stick and a potato. Yeah. A, they, that they give you those guidelines. It's because that's how they want to read it. And there's probably, uh, there's probably a lot more reasons to it than that. So, you know, do yourself a favor and just stick to that. Listen to feedback. Don't think that you're, you're, you know, Stephen King right out of the gate, because I'm, I'm sure he even has to do rewrites now and then. 
um, and to find me online to tell me that I'm wrong, uh, you can find me. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, uh, Twitter at AndrewAwesome76, AndrewAwesome76 on Instagram, and Andrea Sutherland on Facebook. You can also find this podcast online at the Great Lakes Horror Company on Facebook. Great, thank you. Uh, Damon, do you have any last words for our people as an editor or writer and tell them where they can find you, hunt you down and fling their books at you? (laughs) For sure. Um, Yeah, I think my overall advice is, um, you know, as I said, resilience. You know, you you have to, any, if you're in the arts, you have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, your your ability to um, create fascinating characters, to create unique worlds, no one else ultimately will. So you have to have the confidence that you know, you know what you're doing, you're improving. It's, it's a gradual process, but that if you stick at it, you'll keep getting better. And that's really the only realistic goal that one can have. Um, and, and not to, um, allow your self-esteem as a writer or particularly as a person hinge on other people's validation. So, um, but that said, similar to what Andrew said, also take feedback seriously. Don't, don't just assume it's all rubbish and that, your project is perfect, you know, really look at it as objectively as possible and then try to take your own ego out of it and do what's best for the story. So that's my overall advice. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Hawsman. Um, and yeah, best of luck for everyone out there. Great. Thank you. Julianne, any final words of wisdom? Um, well, I don't know how much wisdom is going to come out of me at this point. It is kind of late. Um, but my one of the things I think people need to really stop and do before they want to accept something is to read the guidelines. Um, something that, that Andrew had mentioned before. And um, reading the guidelines is not just reading what font they wanted in, um, you know, what what point of font they wanted in, if they want extra carriage returns between paragraphs, if they want a double space. I'm talking about you need to be honest with yourself when it comes to whether or not the piece that you've either written or are planning to write is actually going to fit that theme. Because sometimes you can actually, if, if, you, if you've already written something and it's sort of sitting in your, in your folder of things that haven't been quite accepted yet or, you know, have been sent out and have been rejected before, if you're just going to blindly send it out to the next anthology that you see come up and you're writing a story about say jack the ripper and somebody wants a story that has to do with um potato you know like a a, like a highly well potatoes potentially but there could be a potato sherlock Holmes story or a potato jack the ripper you never know um thanks a lot because i'm probably gonna write that one too um (laughs) but yeah you know like if, if if they want a story about fly swatters heaven forbid um that somebody would actually come up with that idea but there's one hanging on my wall so it's gonna be something now um yeah no seriously like if you know that your jack the river story is not gonna fit something then don't send it because number one one of the one of the best ways to kind of get your name i, I want to say like it, it's not a strike against you but if you continually submit something to it to specific markets where it's the same publisher all the time um and you're just submitting things um with a spitball chance in hell of it actually um sticking then that shows that you don't have any respect for yourself and you don't have any respect for the process uh and, and what goes th- like what goes into making a book 
because there are hundreds of submissions that have to be read. So I get partway through your story and I'm like, um, like, where does this involve what I asked for? And then it's kind of like the next time you get a story and it's like the same author, you go for the next submission thing. And you're like, well, where's what I asked for in this one? And it just becomes a, you kind of go, okay. So like, it's obvious that this author just wants their work out there. And great. If you believe that you are that good, that you can write a Sherlock Holmes story, for instance, and you can submit it to a story about um, Tupperware killing people, then great. Great. It's good on you because you've got faith in yourself. But don't be surprised when that rejection hits your inbox. Because it's coming. It really <laughs> is, I promise. Done, and done, I, I, done. I feel bad. I feel really bad because you're going to cry a little bit. But then you're just going to submit it somewhere else and it doesn't belong either. So please read the guidelines. <laughs> you, you say um, you feel bad, but I can hear a smile in your voice. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> it's a little late. You know, it's a little bit late. You know, I've had a long day at work. I might be a little bit punchy. So, you know, those are people that, that don't know me should understand that I'm a little bit quirky, have a weird kind of sense of humor. So, no. yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I go for the joke when I don't really have to, but I go for it anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, seriously, like when it comes down to it, look at look at what it is and be honest with yourself. Because you can save yourself heartache um, if you cry over rejections, because some people do. And that's fine, because that's who you are. Um, but if you're the kind of person who's just going to turn around and, oh, I'm going to throw it at this wall because it might stick there. Well, you know, just find something where it'll fit. I mean, Horror Tree is something that, that Andrew's already mentioned. It's a great place. It's got almost every single dark market out there that's open right now and i'm i'm sure that there is going to be a, a jack the ripper anthology open at some point in the near future because there always seems to be one because <laughs> there's a plethora of stories that are just hanging around out there um so yeah so just wait bide your time just wait for it maybe work on it a little bit make sure that you've done the spell check and you put it into a really good font that people can read and it's, it's, you know, formatted correctly where it's not like it breaks across the page in weird ways, but Hey, you know, anyway, if um, you want to find me online and um, you want to hear more of my wonderful humor, because I know you guys are dying to hear more of it. Um, <laughs> you can find me online um, on Twitter. I'm at uh, Canadian zombie writer. That's C D N Z M B I. R-Y-I-T-R. It's phonetic. Trust me, when you see it, you'll get it. Um, or you can find me on Facebook, uh, Julianne Snow. I'm just sort of hanging around. I think I might be one of the only ones, but there might be more, but they're just replicas, so it's fine. But they don't write about potatoes like you do. <laughs> no, nobody does. Nobody does. Nope. <laughs> nobody writes. Nobody writes about potatoes like I do. No, absolutely not. <laughs> nope. Are you on Instagram or anything? Or um, I am, but I don't understand how it works. So I just I'm oh, there, nice. but I'm not really. Okay. I'm right. hoping at some point somebody will take pity on me and help me. Because you could put so many pictures of potatoes on there, man. <laughs> you know what? I could put so many pictures of a lot of things on there, but I still don't understand how it works. So like, take a picture and post it? it at the end. It's just what is pictures. It? What is it with Instagram? Why can't you repost things? Like, wouldn't that be? I isn't know, that that's the whole my, point about sharing? That. 
Yeah, like, I hate it. Yeah, I, I see so many cool things. Although Andrew's managed to send me a couple things. So some there is a way, but it seems like you can only like you email to, things, but you can't repost. I believe you have to download another program oh, to sweet. do it. So yeah, <laughs> so you've got you've got Instagram and then you've got like something called like repost. I know that much, but like I don't know, getting pictures on there. Pfft. Oh. I don't know. I just don't know. But I am there. I, I think I'm also Canadian zombie writer there. It's kind of like my thing. You know? <laughs> right on. And um, yeah, and I'm Suffered Jerome, and you can get find me at sufferedjerome.ca. Um, I'm on Instagram, Suffered Jerome, Pinterest, Suffered Jerome, Twitter, Suffra. I have two Facebooks. One's a personal one, but it has like 4,000 people. So come on in. Uh, so that's Suffered Jerome. Then I have Suffered Jerome author. Um, I don't know why I have the author one now. Well, it's, I used to try and keep it my personal one and my author one separate, and now nah, it's just too hard. So now everyone's over on the personal one. Anyway, so thank you very much, uh, Andrew, Dana, and Julianne, for joining me tonight and telling us all about uh, rejection. <laughs> and thank you, and uh, have a fantastic night. Thank you very much. Welcome back. I am Jason White, and with me today is John Palisano. John's short fiction has appeared in Dark Discoveries, Horror Library, Darkness on the Edge, Lovecraft Ezine, which I'm a big fa fan of, Terror Tales, Halloween Spirits, Child Mad, Halloween Tales, and many, many other publications. He is the author of such novels as Dust of the Dead, Ghost Heart and Nerves. He won the Bram Stoker Award in 2016 for his story, Happy Joe's Rest Stop. Welcome, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us, John. Hi, Jason. Uh, it's great to be here. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I noticed that you write a lot of Halloween stories. Uh, you have a, you even have a collection, uh, a short Halloween-themed collection. I love Halloween stories. So do you, do you still write them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so many of uh, people in the fiction community grew up just loving Halloween. And, um, you know, the tagline to that little mini collection is, you know, our most favorite time of the year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it always was. It was always a letdown after that, you know? Yeah, um, very much so. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I have a few more on deck, of course. You know, it's just so rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love... Uh, there, there's actually... I, I didn't know that there was actually Halloween themed uh, and like collections that authors would release. I knew that there was anthologies, but, but so I've been kind of digging through these uh, and I read them at Halloween every year and, and I came across yours and that was awesome too. Um, and one thing I'm, I didn't mention in your introduction was, uh, you know, uh, you've interviewed some pretty famous people from Robert England to Slipknot's Corey Taylor what was it yeah. like? What was it like talking to those people? And did you run into any egos? You know, I I've never run into any egos talking to those guys, and and um, I got to talk to a lot of people because I was a um, correspondent slash writer for Fangoria mm -hmm. um, a couple of years, and it was just amazing. And I got lucky because they were looking for somebody in L.A. to fill in for somebody that canceled at the last minute to go to one of the effects houses. Hmm. and interviewed people for, um, I forget what the movie was, but lo and behold, I walk in, I was supposed to uh, interview the effects guy and Robert Englund sitting at the table, 
um, I think um, Amber Benson might have been there. And before you know it, I'm talking to them, and we're just yip-yapping, and it's like old friends. Cool. I got a chance to talk to Robert again on the phone, and he's amazing. Um, one of the great things that I, I learned um, talking to him in particular and many others is that they still have so much passion. Yeah. After decades in the business, the, you couldn't stop this guy from talking about his passion for the new, you know, Cannibal series. I mean, it, it was so cool. It was like he was like 13 years old still. <laughs> and I was like, man, that is great. That is, they're not, he wasn't, they weren't cynical or, you know, you know, same with Corey Taylor from Slipknot. I was, I was working at a college and I, I was like, crap, I couldn't get out of work. So I, I, ran to an empty classroom on my on my lunch break mm -hmm. and i full disclosure i wasn't really familiar with um cory taylor or slipknot when i talked to him but we started talking about kiss and gene simmons <laughs> <laughs> and you know these are these are these are people that are just you know they're still just so passionate which you know so there wasn't really any egos um the only time i've ever dealt with egos um, interviewing people is with people who aren't famous yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they wish they were. <laughs> That's always the one. Yeah. Um, is there anyone that you dream of interviewing? Um. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would. There's a lot of people I would, I would love to sit down and talk to. Um, of course, I'd love to talk to Stephen King and you know Anne Rice. Uh, I'd love to talk to Clive Barker at, oh, yeah. in depth. Um. Um, I'd love to talk to Thomas Ligotti. Oh yes, yes. One of my favorites of all time. Um, he'd be amazing. Uh, Henry Rollins. Um, I'd love to talk to. Um, and you know, in the music scene, there's a lot of people I'd love to talk to. I'd love to talk to Springsteen for. I, I could probably talk to him for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, David Lee Roth. I'd love to talk to Ed Van Halen. You know, guys like that. <laughs> Eddie Van Halen might be a bit of a trip. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It would be really interesting. I, you know, he's. I see a lot of correlations between music, uh, people like him, and like you know, a Ligotti, or you know, um, because they're both creators and they're both looking outside of the box. Yeah. And, and they're tinkerers, you know. Yeah. And uh, and that that fascinates me. <laughs> and they they both kind of live on a different plane too, if you think about it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And and that's something like I think we're all like fascinated like. How do they do this? How do they make a living doing something like that? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, you know, what still drives them after all these years? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's really what, what I'd love to get to the heart of. Yeah. That, that would be fascinating. Um, to uh, backtrack a little bit and to uh, get more into your writing, uh, one thing I'm always interested in is, uh, is an author's origin story a little bit. So where did you grow up and did you read a lot as a kid? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I I grew up in the 70s, so I'm a 70s kid. Stranger Things was real for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's creepy how real that that just nailed it. Um, yeah. my, my my childhood. Um, yeah. But we didn't we didn't we lived on top of a, a huge hill, and we didn't have good TV reception, so we were out and about a lot. And I read a lot. My mother and father read a lot, and they were into. My mother gave me, you know. Um, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire when she was done with it when cool. I was 10 years old she said you're going to love this <laughs> you know and I still I still have it it was a first edition and um, she bought it as soon as it came out and my father was was a Stephen King fanatic 
awesome. you know, from the get-go. And we would read the books and pass them around, and we would talk about them. And, you know, they, they, they just instilled this great love of um, the written word. Yeah. Um, and I found out really early. I I loved telling stories. I I did it in school. It was one of the one the one subject I did well at. And I would write these little goofy stories where zombies would eat my teachers. And I had friends suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that... What are you gonna? What, who who's gonna get killed next next year? You know, next next week in in your in your in your story for class. And you know, it was that's really where I started. And that's real. I I still feel like that. You know, little ten year old boy yeah. doing. That. Um, <laughs> that's awesome so when when did you uh, start taking writing seriously um pr- pretty pretty quickly um i in in middle school i published my own fanzine and my own stories and sold them to you know my friends cool and um i i always thought of it as something like like the epitome of something that i would love to do i just loved to do it and it was natural and felt good um and, you know, very quickly I, I saw, you know, success doing that. You know, I'd make four or five dollars in middle school, which was amazing, you know, for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every every month when I put out my, my, my stuff. That's funny because most writers these days have trouble finding that and selling a short story to a, a, a publisher. <laughs> you know, it's getting it's getting more and more difficult um, as there's more anthologies. Actually, selling something for money is hard because there's so many you know, charity anthologies and, and free anthologies and people trying to make their mark. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's so many like $5 and, uh, market anthologies out there or token, uh, you know, finding something that actually pays like three cents or five cents or where it is, uh, a lot more difficult. It, it sure is. And, um, you know, and I think that's, that gets to the heart of, you know, folks are saying, you know, what, how are writers being vetted now and anybody can do it. Well, when you, when you're seeing those books, there is definitely, you know, usually a jump in quality mm-hmm. and you can, and you can tell. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, not always, but yeah. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you started out actually, uh, in the movie business and, uh, you were even an intern for Ridley Scott. Uh, what made you decide to begin writing prose? Uh, what was the switch from writing uh, screenplays to prose? Well, I, I've always written both. I'm um, going back to my childhood. Um, you know, I grew up in in that whole um, '80s, you know, late '70s, early '80s horror, where you know the books were everywhere, the films were everywhere, and you know, me and my me and my friends, we ran around with one of those old VHS camcorders, and made our own movies. Cool. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just a natural progression um, from writing my short stories, and it was more social, of course, when you're a kid, you, you know, you don't want to sit in your room writing stories all day, just, you know, a little bit. Yeah. So, I always had, and my father was in TV and film, so, you know, I would go into his, he, he uh, was a, a director for uh, CBS Evening News for 35, 40 years, mm-hmm. so I'd go, in, I'd go into New York with him and, and, you know, just hang out on the soap opera sets while he put up the news, you know? <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> it, Dude, I have some fun, really fun stories. Like, you know, they'd be like, hey, kid, walk in the background on this scene. And I'd walk through the scene and my dad would call me the next day like, dude, I saw you on Young and the Restless walking in the background. I told you you're supposed to just go get a hot chocolate and come back. You know, he was like, like, you're like, well, that's what I did. I I was like, I did. They grabbed me and they said, hey, kid, come walk back this scene. He's like, well, you're supposed to get paid for that. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So, um, you know, we had, you know, a lot of fun. So it was it was a natural progression. And I've always done both. Um. Uh, but I, I had to go to college, <laughs> and um, 
I said, what am I going to do for college? You know, so I took a split, um, a split um, um, focus on, on, on fiction and, and filmmaking. So I got a dual degree in, in, um, in that. And um, again, I mean, it's very, I mean, I think, you know, making films and, and, and writing stories is just, you know, the world, the way the world is now. If you're a storyteller, you know, in that genre, you know, you, you love both, you know, you cannot just be exclusively reading books or watching movies. I think, you know, I think most people who practice this art love both tremendously. Yeah, for sure. I know if that's I, the case oh, with me and my friends anyway. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Me well, and my writer friends anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, we love both know, mediums, you know? I mean, I imagine all you, you know, you, you watch like, like something like the void that's coming out. Everybody's really excited about, you yeah. know? Actually, I just saw that the other night. It's awesome. <laughs> Is it? Oh man, I'm, I'm waiting for the perfect night. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's a total throwback. I think you'll love it. Ah, and sounds it's, great. And it's yeah. really disturbing too. It's, it's really messed up. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so in your own writing, um, how did you handle rejection in the beginning? pretty badly <laughs> heartbroken um, i took it you know right before the whole internet thing broke i really started to um get more serious about fiction again um because i had been in the film industry for 10 years and it's physically exhausting and draining um and they own your you, they own your tail for you know 24 7 when you're on, when you're on a show yeah and, you know, I had just had a boy, you know, a little child, and I was like, you know what, I, I, I need to step away from this a little bit, and I, I kind of want to write these and not have to be on set for 18 hours a day for 65 days straight. Um, mm -hmm. um, so um, that that was pretty much um, what what happened with that. We, like, we transitioned in, into that. Um, where was I going with that? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> um um, but but getting but getting back oh rejection rejection yes. um so I I had I had written stories and and for two or three years I was sending stuff out religiously I I think I wrote twenty twenty or twenty five short stories and was sending them out and this was at a time when no email submissions accepted paper only and yeah. you know turnaround was like eighteen months yeah. man you know it was brutal and you know you'd get a letter back and they'd be like. Yes, we're going to hold this for further consideration. You're like, oh my god, dude, this story is going to be old news by the time it ever. And I got close a few times, and and I had some really, you know, I was I had a story held in in one anthology, and it was literally mine or another story, and the other one got it, and I was just devastated for like months, man, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But um, then then I broke through horror library, finally gave me my first pro sale, and that you know the other thing was. I, I didn't want to come out and do a lot of cheap stuff. You know, I wanted to wait and get pro sales or semi-pro. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to just get into something that looked looked terrible and represented my stories terribly. Because um, um, at the time, it was, you know, the, the things that weren't professional weren't really professional at all. It's not like the last few years you've seen a huge rise in quality of indie press thanks to, the you know, the computers. Yeah. And the, and the the programs have gotten a lot better, and the layouts and everything looks really good with CreateSpace. But before that, it was just they were just god awful. <laughs> and and I was just like, I don't I don't want to be in those. I'd rather not have anything than be in that. Yeah. So I waited, and I finally got into Horror Library three with the Haven, and it was such a, a validating moment. I mean, I took pictures of the box of my copies on my porch. You know, <laughs> I was so excited. 
But you know, honestly, and and you know, when when you read my bio at the beginning, I was like, oh my god, who's that guy? Right? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of rejection, I have not sold a pro rate story in a year. Oh wow. That, that and, ca- and, and tons of rejections this year, and it's after winning the Stoker. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that kind of goes into my next question. <laughs> you already answered. Do you still get rejected? <laughs> but uh, how do you handle it today when you get rejected? Like, because like you said, you've won the Stoker. You're, you're, uh, you're an accomplished novelist, and yet you still get rejected. How do you handle it? I'm much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I definitely, I don't take it personally because you know. I've edited a few anthologies, and I, I know what it's like. I, I know how difficult the process it is, mm-hmm. and how everything really needs to just fit to make that thing float. And um, I respect that. And I also know that, you know, a story not sold in one place will probably find a home if it's of a certain quality of mine. At yeah. some point, find the right home, the right fit. Yeah. So, you For know, sure. you know, I, I always keep that in mind um, that. You know, it's not it, one rejection isn't game over. Yeah, exactly. It's you know so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was reading your blog and uh, I came across uh, a piece of advice you had on finding time to write every day because that that's I would say probably one of the biggest complaints most people have is that they don't have the time uh, to find to write every day. But you had some pretty interesting things that I even do, uh, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to share your ideas about finding the time to write well of course um first of all if you want to write you will find the time you know Mm -hmm. you 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 need to make you need to make it a mental priority yeah because we were talking about movies and tv shows and in this age there's so much noise (laughs) coming at you and you have to find that discipline you have to say i'm not going to go on facebook for 20 minutes you know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to binge watch three episodes of with the latest Netflix. I'm going to watch two, and that last twenty minutes, I'm going to write. Yeah. And believe it or not, just that little tiny bit of time, you can be very productive. Um, for me personally, I find my mind is sharp, and I do my best work right when I wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, because the day hasn't bore me down. I'm not exhausted. You know, I I don't have six hundred things hitting me at once. Um, and so for 15 or 20 minutes, when I wake up, I grab my phone and, um, if, if the house isn't burning down, I'll just work on something. And, you know, the phones, the phones or a little laptop now are so easy to write on. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be, I don't, I give my permission. It doesn't have to be perfect. The punctuation doesn't have to be perfect. I just have to get words down because I can, I can fix punctuation when I'm falling on my face. Yeah. But coming up with that raw material you can't and i think you know if every writer did that every day if you're if you're doing 250 words a day in 15 20 minutes which is just average easy clip mm-hmm. you have a short you have a short story every two months or you have two chapters on a novel yeah every month and at the end of the year you've got a novel's worth of, of writing done yep i i actually use my cell phone and uh, it surprised me that you mentioned that because i haven't talked to too many people who use their cell phones to write, but it's so much easier these days because you have uh, you have uh, uh, Google Docs. Uh, you can yeah. also get uh, Microsoft uh, Word for free, and uh, all you need is an account. It, well, same with Google Docs, but it saves everything online, and you can keep it all uh, backed up. It's not going to get e- erased or destroyed by a fire or something. True, and 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 those are amazing programs, 
and you know they, they sync live to your computer and everything else. Mm-hmm. And and I love Google Docs. That's my go-to app. Um, and even folks who don't have that or they don't have a phone that supports that, they all have the Notes app. Yeah. You know, I used the Notes app um, when when the iPhone first came out to to write stories in. And you know, it was it was hokey, but man, if I had a half an hour lunch, I knew I I could do fifteen minutes at lunch. Yeah. And every week I was I'd get a short story down on my lunch breaks. <laughs> and you know. Your mileage may vary and the quality may vary, but that's true of anything. You yeah, know? and you, like you said, you can fix it later when you do have the time to actually sit in front of your computer. Right, <clears throat> right. That, that is such a benefit, you know. It is such a benefit, and you can do it. You know, you can have. You know, you could do it in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you can wake up and you can you can capture your dream, and you know you can just roll over, and you don't have to be like you know sitting upright, and you can just kind of you know slowly work on something and. You know, it's great. It's such a gift. Yeah, and it really I think, is. I think every writer should be able to have no excuse to say, I don't have the time. Yeah. And you know, if, I, if I may just make a quick aside, I think a lot of writers, when you first start out, they feel like they need to be in a certain space and they need to kind of go through this method acting kind of a thing to start writing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have to learn that that's not realistic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not in this day and age uh, with everything no. going on. <laughs> Now, uh, with your own writing, uh, you've experienced some bad luck recently with uh, with Samhain or Samhain going out of business. Now, this right. makes some of your work suddenly without a home. Uh, yeah. Is there any plans on getting those books back into print? Absolutely. Um, I have a couple of options available um, at the moment. I'm, I'm really weighing. Um, I, I've had, at the same time, Bad Moon released my first book to me nerves mm-hmm. um I, literally it's kind of crazy timing so rather than going with a third party i said let me try self-publish let me let me clean this up make the cover and everything and see how it goes mm-hmm. and because i wanted to see how what what that side of it's like with an actual novel and that's going pretty good um i've actually made i, I hate to say it, but i've made more dough not a lot more but i've made more dough doing that myself than i did with the actual publisher mm-hmm. cool <laughs> two months um you know i'm not I'm not a huge name, so I'm not going to get huge sales. Even if I partner with somebody, I'm not going to probably get, you know, thousands of copies out of the gate of my books going out. But <laughs> it's kind of nice to have that control. But on the flip side, I am one man. And it's a lot of work to, to you know, pop, you know, put your own stuff out. So, I, you know, there's a few um, presses that have I've talked to, like, that maybe we're going to put them out through them. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm just – I. I it's it's a lot it's a lot to um it's a big decision <laughs> yeah very much so <laughs> uh your most recent novel you just mentioned is uh, nerves um can you tell us what that one's about um uh, well nerves is the story of uh two brothers and they can shoot nerves out of their fingers and they can either take life or give life when they do so okay um, but they can't do it at will like an X-Men. <laughs> you know, they, they can, but it's it's extremely painful and it's really, it wipes the hell out of them and, and um, they have to use it judiciously. And it, there's a whole mythology behind it of how that, how they got those gifts and, and why they got those gifts. And um, there's a witch named Ogum who basically um, got their family into a really awful pact and he comes back calling and he wants payment. <laughs> <laughs> as these bastards tend to do 
at the worst <laughs> possible time, and they want to take out people you love yeah. to pay them back. So, you know, it's it's a very um, I would say nervous more. It's more like a dark fantasy. Yeah. And um, that's I, I I actually put that as the category like dark fantasy and magical realism because it's much more that than a traditional horror. Mm-hmm. And um, it's you know. So that's what that's what nervous is about, and I actually wrote I wrote half of, half of a prequel slash sequel to it that um, I should really get back to, but <laughs> <laughs> so many ideas, so little time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it sounds really awesome, and I hope that everyone will go and pick up a copy and check it out. Uh, do you do you have anything coming out soon that you're able to talk about? Yeah, um, I I have a new a new novel. Um, when when, Sa- when Sam Hain and that the, the they they said that's the correct way that's the American pronunciation is what they said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can go with that if they want. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they um, they had almost signed me for my third book um, when when they when they folded um, Night of a Thousand Beasts, mm. and uh, that is supposed to be coming out I believe in January. Awesome. Of next year, finally, um, definitely um, we got we got kind of shuffled there, but. I definitely found a new home. I'm about to sign a contract. Um, any day it should be coming in. I'm not sure I should. It's not a big deal. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a specialty press again. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but um, that, that's a, that, uh, the longest day of the year in Colorado where um, the animals actually hunt people. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> so they, 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 they get a. Um, a they get like five or six hipsters trapped, and they they just basically hunt them down, kind of like Jack Ketchum esque. Uh-huh. And it's very it's really Grand Guignol and very fun and and tongue in cheek. Um, so you that's, know that's that's what's next. <laughs> that, that sounds awesome. I love the title too. <laughs> the title rocks. Thanks, man. It's it's, it's kind of like Rob Zombie meets uh, Jack Ketchum is. <laughs> 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 you know, it's a, it's a fun romp. My other stuff has been very kind of deep and serious, and this one's this one's a lot. I think it's it's fun. Yeah. You know, so hopefully people who like Ed Lee and stuff like that would would will will dig it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, before we go, I have just one more question. Uh, sure. Uh, and this is a typical question some writers hate answering, but uh, I think it's always good. Um, what is your advice to newer writers? Um, number one. Read a lot. Mm-hmm. And number two, write a lot. Yes. And number three, um, get out there, talk to people, share your work, and be open to criticism. And don't get married to anything that you've written. That's very good advice. Um, that's I, I think that would be uh, the best thing that writers could follow, honestly. Uh, and maybe add persistence. Yeah. Don't, don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Um, success is, is is always two steps away from the people that just gave up. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so where can so, where can listeners find you online? Um, JohnPalisano.com has all everything links to everything. J o h n p a l i s a n o dot com. And I I, I uh, recommend people go check that out because you have some pretty good cool uh, blog entries too that. Uh, oh. Like the one I, I mentioned in the interview here, because uh, that one I found fascinating for uh, for the reasons I mentioned. But uh, there's other great posts in there as well. Oh, great. Thanks, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for talking with us, and uh, we'll talk to you again.
Hopefully you're not feeling too dejected after all this talk of rejection. As always, we thank you for not rejecting us. Thank you also to this episode's special guests, Danan Hawes, Julianne Snow, and John Palisano. You can subscribe to the Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes. You can also find us on Facebook, just search for us by name, and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, please email it to glhc at horror-writers.ca. The Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by libraryofthedam.com. The show is produced by Sefra Jerome, Monica S. Kubler, and Andrew Robertson. Our theme music has been provided by Leslea Kuvorst. Our next installment will be hitting the Weird Wide Web on June 13th. Till then, keep it creepy. And don't be afraid to befriend the things that go bump in the night.